So, the book of Proverbs, it has been 18 weeks. This is the 18th study. It's actually been 19 weeks because I missed a week to go and marry my son back in Virginia. But other than that, 19 weeks, we've made it through 31 chapters. This tonight we will finish in chapter 31. And it's a great chapter. One of, it's a very popular chapter, a famous chapter. And hopefully we can, we can uh, just glean some stuff out of that. Last week, Proverbs 30, also a really interesting chapter. And just for like a quick review, the words of Agur. And this, this, this man that, that could have been another name for Solomon. We talked about the authorship a little bit there. But it starts out just kind of highlighting our inability to attain wisdom or righteousness on our own. I think that's how it opens. It talks about contentment, about being happy, not too much, not too little, but leaving that in God's hands as far as our provision and, and, and how we honor his name in that. We talked about the generation of the godless and some of those characteristics and how that applies to the end times, but how there's always been those people in our culture, in our society, that are enemies of God and, and how we're different and how we should be different in our culture. Um, there was all those various illustrations, different animals and different things like that and how they might give us some uh, truths of God's kingdom. Some of you might remember some of that. We talked about that and... Uh, and finally, that last verse where it talks about if you've sinned, if you've fallen into um, sin somehow, even sin with your mouth, that come to God. There's always that, that time and that place to repent and to make things right with God. Because I think that was such a cool verse because so much of Proverbs is like the fool this and the wicked that. And it can, be, it can start to feel kind of hopeless at least for me, and say because I have done all those things. I've sinned with my tongue. I've had those kind of thoughts about people and, and those kind of things. But it says we always have this opportunity to come and examine ourselves in the light of God's word and to correct our course. Um, there's, there's never not an opportunity for that, and I love that verse. So, But beginning in Proverbs 31, um, I'm not going to read quite yet, but it's, it's basically two sections. We have verses 1 through 9 that are a mother's instruction to her son, who is the king. And she warns him of illicit relationships, the dangers of alcohol, and the importance of maintaining justice. Verses 10 through 31 are perhaps the, the most famous verses of this chapter that describe a truly amazing, idealized even, godly wife. They describe a woman of virtue, excellence, and seemingly inexhaustible energy and zeal for those she loves. A woman who excels in every way and whose husband is exalted thereby. Those last verses, um, 10 through 31, are what's called an acrostic. I don't know if you guys knew that. That's essentially like an alphabetic poem. And every verse begins with a different character of the Hebrew alphabet. And that is a memorization. It'd be like, you know, verse 1 starts with A, and verse 2, B, and verse 3, C, and, you know, the parallel with the Hebrew alphabet. Um, but that's a memorization technique. And it's designed to make it easier to remember and to recite these passages. So this mother who is speaking these words, who's speaking this advice and describing this idealized godly wife, it's, it's something that she intended to be treasured, 
to be remembered and applied. So reading in Proverbs 31, verses 1 through 2. The words of King Lemuel. That's how we're just going to say that. I think that's right. An oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? So who is King Lemuel? Traditionally, this has been thought to be, again, another name for Solomon. Lemuel effectively, essentially is translated for God, devoted to God, for God, Lemuel. There are those that think this is a different person than Solomon. There is some debate about that, but traditionally, um, especially in Jewish culture, this is King Solomon. That would make the author of this book, or of this chapter, excuse me, Bathsheba, David's wife. And that would also start to make sense of verse 2, that verse where it says, what are you doing, son of my vows, son of my vows? And it reminds us of the vow of the prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah made. You might remember she was distraught. She had been barren. She couldn't have children. And she says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she makes this vow to the Lord. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And we know that God answered her prayer, and she had Samuel, and she took him to the temple, and he came, became a prophet and a priest to God in the chapel, uh, in, the, <laughs> in the temple, rather. And we also know that David and Bathsheba's first son died in infancy, a terrible tragedy that undoubtedly broke Bathsheba's heart. And it's possible... This conjecture is possible, even probable, that after such a tragedy, Bathsheba might make a similar vow, devoting her son Solomon to the Lord, and even ensuring his inheritance and reign from his father David. We remember when Bathsheba comes to David at the end of his life and lobbies for Solomon, says, remember, remember, he's supposed to take over. The other brother had tried to usurp the throne, and Bathsheba's pleading her cause because she knew it was God's will for Solomon to reign after David. But in any case, we have here this earnest mother's instruction to her son, a desire to see him blessed in his reign and happy and fruitful in his relationships. So Proverbs 31, verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. So first thing, save your strength. Save your strength. This word strength specifically has to do with ruling power. It's not so much about physical strength. It's about ruling power, the vitality and force of his kingdom, which would be compromised if he devoted himself to women, plural. Now, Bathsheba, if she is the author here, would have intimate knowledge of the cost of illicit relationships. She had seen firsthand the damage they can cause to a kingdom and also to a family. You remember from this relationship that David had, all that, it was almost, it was a civil war at one point 
um, David's son, Absalom, had tried to take the throne from him, and there was a, there was a war for a time between, within David's own family because of the relationship that he had had with her. Now, we've seen other similar verses in Proverbs that, that express this same idea that she's saying here. Proverbs 5, 8 through 10. It says, speaking of, again, a woman that's outside of God's will for your life, says, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength. There's that, your strength again. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. This was also one of God's commandments specifically for a king of his people. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, this should be a good memory verse, right? 17, 17. Whenever there's those, I like to try to remember. He says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And it's the same consistent thing that, that this mother is advising her king's son to adhere to. That if you do that, your heart's going to be turned away from the Lord. We do see that in Solomon's life, right? There was that time where it says that all those, because he did indulge in this. And perhaps his mother saw that tendency in him. That's why she starts out this way. But we know that his heart was drawn away from God because of that. But what we see, what I think is also really hopeful in this, in this chapter and in this advice, what we see here is a woman who started out in adultery who started out in this, in this really sleazy kind of thing that went on and there, you know, her husband was murdered and all this and this stuff. And then we see her later on in life being in line with God's word, having learned from her mistakes, having apparently repented of those things and come under the authority of God's word. I think that's just a really helpful thing. Again, I make, we don't know for sure if she's the one that wrote this. Again, it seems that way, and if it is, that's a really hopeful message. Now, she goes on to say, after that warning from women about women, she says in, in verses 4 through 7, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So first she talks about women and now wine, right? These are two things that get guys in a lot of trouble oftentimes, women and wine. I don't think this is an admonition to completely abstain from, from alcohol, just as her admonition to avoid women is not meant to be taken as an instruction to celibacy. Right? She wasn't telling Solomon he needs to be celibate and not marry. She's saying keep that in, in the right, um, in the will of God. Don't go outside of that. Not women, but woman, one woman for him. Because, and we also see the rest of this chapter illustrates an ideal godly marriage. So again, when we, when we look at that, this isn't necessarily an admonition for him never to drink. Ra <laughs> Excuse me. Rather, it's a warning of relying upon alcohol in a way that compromises one's faculties. 
that causes one to forget what's important. Now, for some, like myself, it does mean total abstinence. And certainly those in roles of leadership should be extremely careful in this area. We know Jesus drank wine on multiple occasions, but he never abused it. That's, we know that. He was even accused at one point of being what some translations call a wine-bibber. That's be like calling him a drunk. And we know he wasn't that. Yet, there was a time when he intentionally abstained. While in agony on the cross, he was offered sour wine mingled with gall. Now, gall is referring to this substance made from myrrh that is essentially a sedative or a painkiller. And it says in Matthew 27, verse 34, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. This was like drugged wine. Think of it that way. And he wouldn't take it. Jesus, our king, did not want to forget why he was there. His senses dulled. He was intentionally present and awake in his judgment and in the infliction of his father's will. That's when he chose to abstain. See, while he was indeed this one who was perishing, he was also the king who would rise again. While he was the one in distress, he could also see the joy set before him that would result in the salvation of all his children. And so he abstained. He didn't want to forget. He didn't want to be dulled. He wanted to be present. He wanted to be aware and fully, fully in control of that situation. You know, a lot of times people drink so that they can just feel better or forget their problems or whatever. That's when Jesus was faced with the greatest trial we can imagine. That's when he abstained. There's also times when we need to abstain, not just from alcohol, but from whatever might cause us to compromise that what has been decreed, what is in God's word, or to pervert the rights of the afflicted by causing others to stumble in our liberty. Now, Paul's very clear about that. At one point, he's talking about sacrifices made to idols, and he's saying we understand that there's really nothing to that, but in the interest of our love for other people, we need to abstain. There's going to be those times in our life where we might have liberty, but because of the importance of that situation, we need to abstain. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, going on in her advice to her son, she says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. First thing, open your mouth. Open your mouth. Speak up. There's times where our silence can be deafening. To keep silence in the face of sin and unrighteousness is oftentimes the greatest sin of all. Yet truly, these can be fearful situations. We might remember Esther, that beautiful godly woman who was called upon to speak for her people, to open her mouth at the peril of her own life to risk herself to save others. You might remember Esther. Mordecai, her uncle and guardian, he says to her in Esther 4, verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief 
and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come, whether you have come, hold on. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Remember that? There was that great threat against her people. And she said, I, if I go into the king unannounced, I could be killed. I don't want to speak up. She really struggled with that for a time. And he gives her this word, and she realizes he's right. And she takes courage, and she goes in before the king, and she speaks up for her people. And because of what she did, all her people were delivered and her enemies destroyed. I think it's also interesting that in times of our own defense, how loud we can be, how vociferous we can be in our own defense, right? If no one has to tell us to open our mouth, most of the time with me, with maybe some of you, I need to shut up. I need to be told to be quiet when I'm defending myself. But how hard it can be to speak up for others and in situations that we find uncomfortable or scary. So now let's get into Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 11. And this is that section where it's going to start describing this woman. And let me just read the first two verses. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. First, actually that's the first three verses. But first we see the immense value we should place on a wife who follows the Lord. And this is something that's all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus sees us, his church, his beloved bride, as priceless despite being imperfect and needy of forgiveness. I think that's something we need to remember as we go through this. That this wife, as amazing as she is, she's not perfect, right? She's not without sin, and yet Jesus died for us while we were still his enemies. That's the kind of love, that's the kind of value that he places on his church. That's the kind of value we as husbands should place on our wives. He gave himself not a result of our works, not as a reward for our labors, but rather for the value he saw in us despite ourselves. I think likewise, most men fall in love with their wives long before they have borne them children or washed their clothes or really done anything at all. Do you agree with that? I think most of us find ourselves in that place where we don't even think about any of those things when we first meet the woman that will become our wife. What we see in these first two verses set the stage for the rest of the chapter. It's a relationship that begins with trust, not control. Did you see that? An excellent one. It says, the heart of her husband trusts her in her. So it's a relationship that starts with trust, not control. Love that is freeing and enabling, not coercive or tyrannical. It's not manipulative or demanding, but one of grace and confidence. And that's the husband's responsibility in this chapter, I think, to create a loving atmosphere that allows a woman to flourish and respond of her own free will. 
And the reason I say that is that's the kind of love that our Savior has for us. He comes to us to free us, not to be our tyrant, but to be our father, our husband, our Lord, our friend, all those things. And I think if we want good from our wives, we must be good to them, and that starts with trust, again, because that's the type of the, Lord, the love our Lord has for us. Think of the, we talk a lot about in Christianity about free will. Why doesn't God control, you know, and people, that really amazes a lot of people. Why doesn't God control all these little things about the world with suffering and, and trials and these kind of things? But he can't be one and the other at the same time. If he, if he controls all that stuff and he eliminates all free will, that's not real love. That's not real trust. He gives us choices because he loves us. And I think that's what we're seeing here. As we go through these verses, too, I think it's important to point out, not every woman will demonstrate all of these characteristics. So all you ladies out there don't, I mean, we read this stuff and it's, it's incredible, right? I mean, I don't think anybody's expected to be like this literally. I think these are, this is an idealized thing. Maybe, um, so like, you know, some of you might say to yourselves as we go through these, you know, I like to sleep in sometimes. You know, I don't even know what a distaff or a spindle is, you know, or or do I need to go buy some land and plant a vineyard? Like, I don't know anything about this. So, So as I look at that, I'm like, I hope this isn't condemning. Like, this isn't something I don't think that every woman is expected to exemplify every single one of these traits. But perhaps some of these things might apply. I think what we need to look at overall is a pattern of selflessness, of faithfulness and devotion, and of industriousness. And that's something that's been all the way through Proverbs for everybody, not just women and wives, but for husbands, for everybody. These are things that should define not just godly wives, but all followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Another point, just real quick, is this is, we have to look at this also as a very enlightened description of a woman's role in a household and the importance she has, particularly for an ancient culture. If we really look at this and look what she's about and look how it's um, praised, it's a great defense to those who would say that the Bible denigrates women. It's really the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. The husband in this chapter is honored by even enriched by the freedom and trust he places in his intelligent, talented, and even liberated and empowered wife. And those words are, those words are controversial, liberated and empowered. But in Christ, that's what we are. We've got to embrace that. We do have liberty. We do have power in his spirit. But not like the world says. This isn't the kind of thing where we're um, liberated into sin. It's liberated into freedom. And that's what we see in this chapter. It's a really, really cool defense for those who would say that the Bible, um, again, is against women or minimizes women's role. Proverbs 31, 13 through 18. We'll get into it. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. 
With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. So first of all, we see a woman who is seriously sleep deprived, right? <laughs> so, because it says from the very beginning, she rises while it's yet night, but then her lamp doesn't go out at night. So like, when is she sleeping? When is she getting rest? She rises early. She stays up late. We wonder when she even has an opportunity to sleep. And this is not an admonition to insomnia, but rather to being awake and using the time wisely. I also say, and look at this, she rises early not for herself, but for the good of her household, for the good of others. We see that she has willing hands, a heart to serve. She's strong and is willing to take initiative. And that section, her merchandise is profitable. I think that's an interesting verse. I think it speaks of a confident woman who values herself and her investments in her family. And in truly valuing herself and her achievements, she's unwilling to let herself be tempted or devalued by compromise. I think that's a really important thing. I think that's essentially what, we're, what we could refer to as virtue. That's a word that's kind of outdated these days, right? Virtue. It's something that we should all have as men as well. Seeing ourselves as treasured by God not devalued by the world, not looking for affirmation or praise for ourselves. And when we do that, that makes us profitable to him. What we have to offer God is profitable when we're in that place. I think that's an aspect of what that verse is referring to. Proverbs 31, 19 through 25. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So that's a lot. You see, just she is so busy. This distaff and spindle has to do with like weaving fabric, making fabric from scratch. Does anybody in here do that? <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, this would not be a blessing to me. If my wife shows up with some handmade clothing, I'm, I, ain't, I ain't going there. We're not doing that. We ain't Amish. We ain't doing that. So don't do that. <laughs> but in any case, what we see is like her generosity and provision for those both outside, for inside and outside her home. I think that's a really cool picture. Her generosity and provision for, for those she loves and for strangers as well. That when we see scarlet, fine linen, and purple, that all denotes like luxury, high-quality goods. These are all things that were, that were considered luxuries in the ancient world. And in her generosity to the poor, we see that God has blessed her household. So that's something, again, we've seen throughout Proverbs. If we, um, I'll say in Proverbs 19, 17. 
Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And it's not that we give to get. It's just that that's part of God's economy, that if we were promised that if we're generous and we give and we're, we have faith in that stuff and we're willing to um, not hold on to the things God's given us really tightly, that he'll give us more and more and more as we need to be generous to others. Now, these verses that say she is not afraid, that she laughs at the time to come, you know, that can kind of sound like this prideful independence, but really it's that of faith and trust in her husband's provision and God's ability to protect them. It's not anxiety or fretfulness, but rather a calmness, an assuredness of God's provision for her home. Also, her husband has gained influence and notoriety as a result of her work in charity. I think this speaks to all of us that our testimony should also result in our Savior being known in the gates. And play, you know, when we, when we hear that thing in the gates, in the city gates, that was a place of commerce and trade, a place of influence, a place where people would negotiate contracts and things like that. And, she's, and, and this man is in the gates, and he's known at least partially because of the industriousness and the charity of his wife. I think our testimony also should result in God being known in those places, God being known in our life, God being made famous in a sense, that our works and our reputations should serve to bring God glory just as we see this woman bringing her husband glory. Man, we were just like moving right along. So Proverbs 31, 26 through 31. And these are the last verses here. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her, speaking, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She's not only known by her works and acts of service, but as one who speaks. That thing where it says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So it's not just her works, it's also her teaching. She's willing to share the wisdom that she has. She teaches, confesses, and shares her wisdom. Now, there's a a woman that Paul, again, Paul is just, the Apostle Paul is teaching in the book of Titus, and he's saying this. He says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, like this woman here, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So essentially, again, this woman who is investing in others, who's teaching, who's passing along what she knows and what she's learned from her life. We also see here her children and husband praising her, complimenting her, recognizing and affirming her. 
I think that's awesome. I think that is, that is where we need to come as husbands to recognize those things that, that are going on in our household and to pass that on to our children, encourage our children. I mean, you know, after every meal, thanks, Mom, you know, that kind of stuff. I think, they, I think that means the world to my wife, and I'm sure to a lot of you as well. Um, but I think it's, it, it kind of, in this context too, and I think that's appropriate, but it kind of seems like the husband is like, good job, good job, you know, patting her on the back. Thank you for slaving away and making me rich. You know, like that's kind of what we see throughout this chapter, that she's done all this work, and he's like, man, you're, you're great. You've done so much for me, and I'm really appreciative. And that's, that's a good heart to have, I think. But I think it's really something closer to thank you for who you are. Thank you for allowing God to use you. And it's a type of praise and adoration that has little to do with her works, her teaching, or even her beauty or charm. It's an expression of love for her heart of faith and her true and lovely spirit. You know, we didn't have to cook and clean for Jesus to save us. This is something we've already talked about. We didn't have to do anything for God to love us. We don't love our wives because of what they do for us. Jesus doesn't love us because of what we do for him. We didn't have to make him dinner or weave his clothes. It says that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So now we consider it an honor to serve him freely in return. And in so doing, our relationship grows and grows and our love gets deeper and deeper. You know, there will come a time for those of us who are saved where Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think we often think of that time as where we're going to be essentially praised for all our good works and all the good ways that we've served God and all the things we've done. I mean, I think that, and there's even some context to that in a way in that passage when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my kingdom. But we're also told it won't be because we prophesied or perform many mighty works, or even cast out demons, it'll simply be because we knew him and we believed in him, that we were faithful to him. That's what we want in a relationship. That's what we want in a marriage. That's what we want in a friendship. And that's really what this whole thing, I think, is about, is a woman being selfless, being faithful, being industrious, not to get some reward for her husband, from her husband, but because she loves him and gives, his, gives her life for him, just like we took on his name and left our old lives behind. Because of that, think of what God's entrusted to us, how he set us free, and how he's even now preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever. And really, that's where I just wanted to end it tonight. That's why what I see in Proverbs it can feel somewhat legalistic at times. It can feel somewhat condemning at times. But if we go back to the very beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And having that fear leads us into keeping his word, applying his word. And just like we see in this revelation of this perfect marriage relationship of this industrious woman, that our love grows deeper and deeper and deeper. And we forget fear. We forget um, 
You know, a lot of us come to, come to the Lord because we, were, we didn't want to be condemned to hell, right? I mean, that's where it kind of started for some of us, that our lives were a wreck and we were distraught, and so we come to him. I think that's why my wife married me. No, I'm just kidding, because <laughs> not out of some sort of, you know, hope to save me, maybe. But honestly, when we look at it, it's, it's, it's just this, this whole picture of, of this devout relationship, this life of selflessness that God wants to draw us into throughout Proverbs. So it's been a great privilege to be going through here. I really appreciate you guys letting me go through this. I appreciate the, the opportunity to be up here and to study through it. And we're going to take a break. Next week, um, Pastor Paul is going to be up here doing a study. And then we're taking the break for Christmas, and then I'm going to do another short series after that in January um, through another book, probably Habakkuk is what I'm looking into, uh, one of the minor prophets. Um, but I really hope this has been a blessing to you guys, and I really appreciate it. So, um, Father, we just come to you tonight, and um, we thank you for, again for your word, for your spirit that allows us to interpret your word and to even want to know about you and about your word. And I thank you for saving us. I thank you for trusting us with the gospel. Lord, you've given us so much freedom in you, and I pray we would use that freedom to glorify your name in this fallen world, in this dark culture that we find ourselves in. And Lord, we don't have to, we don't have to make it a big deal. Sometimes it's just the smallest act of charity, the smallest thing can bring glory to you, Lord. You tell us that if we give someone a glass of water in your name, that it won't be forgotten before you. So I pray, let us remember that. Let us be hopeful in you. Let us grow in our relationship with you. Again, we just give you praise and thank you tonight in Jesus' name.